Hello, everybody. This is Queer Voices, a home-produced podcast that has grown out of a radio show that's been on the air in Houston, Texas for several decades. This week, I will be talking with John Garrison, who is researching a book about queer citizens' watch patrols in the 1990s. A more powerful part of the project for me is to actually speak to people and to to make their stories and voices heard in a way that takes the story out of simply facts. I do want to educate people, but I also want to move the voices into the forefront, if that makes sense. Then Deborah Moncrief Bell has a conversation with the Montrose Center about this year's Bringing in the Green Party and fundraiser. And Deborah also has a conversation with Diggle about designing the set for Cowboy Bob, which is at the Alley Theater now through March 26th. This show has been one of the hardest to design. I think if Annie and I were in the same room talking about our whole journey of designing this piece, it has been constantly trying to hone in on what is the essence of this story. And we have news wrap from This Way Out. Queer Voices starts now. Hi, my name is John Garrison. I live in Los Angeles, and I am researching a book about anti-gay violence in the 1990s and before, and the community's response by creating community patrols. And I'm Glenn Holt with Queer Voices, and since I was co-president of Houston's Q Patrol Incorporated in the 1990s, I'm actually part of the subject of this conversation with John Garrison. John, how did you discover the connection between Q Patrol and Queer Voices? How did you find us? I came upon a, a post on Instagram uh, a few months ago, I would say about six or so months ago, about the Pink Panthers, which was the uh, New York's version of uh, street patrols. And it was posted during some, something was going on in, in the political sphere, as always is, and it was horribly anti-gay, as it often is. And the post uh, was just reminding the queer community that we have power. Like, look, at one time, there was a group of people that were going out at night and protecting ourselves. And the image was just of a solo man wearing the Pink Panther garb and, and, and fist in the air, or some very powerful pose. And it just really stuck with me. And it spoke to something that I was feeling at the time of being afraid and of being powerless and about wanting to sort of hide my queerness or at least temper it a little bit or soften the edges so that I could exist in the world safer. And it, and it really spoke to to not trying to do that and to try to remember the power that I had and, and remember the power that the people before me showed on, on a nightly basis. And and that it just stuck with me and I, I really couldn't get that out of my head and I wanted to, to know more. And so I started to research the project or research the issue rather. Have you yourself ever participated in an anti-hate patrol? I have not. I, I, I'm a big guy, so I, I should, but I have not. There aren't many around, but as I move through the project, it's definitely something that I really want to experience. There are a number of patrols out there. There's a couple of gay patrols, current gay patrols that I found that I would love to, to go out and to experience. And there are 
a number of kind of predominantly straight patrols that I would also really enjoy experiencing. So I have not, but I do wish to. What is your motivation for doing this research and why now? The political climate, you know, every day is some new awful anti-gay piece of legislation or an anti-trans legislation or something trying to silence us and something to try to remove us from the conversation. I'm 42. And as a gay man, you know, even 20 years ago, we were not taught gay history. We weren't, I didn't learn any part of gay history. I grew up in a small town in Ohio and there was just nothing that encouraged me. There was nothing that brought gay history to my, to my knowledge. You know, I grew up in a a really fundamental Christian household. And so my parents, of course, were not going to teach me about anything gay history. And as the political space these days really tries to move queer people to the to the sidelines and tries to make us invisible i think my response to that and my middle finger to that is to sort of remind people of our history not even remind i guess teach people of our history you know people of my generation and and the ones that came after me i just there wasn't a lot of encouragement to learn about our own history and there was a whole generation of men that just don't exist and that weren't teaching the history to the people that came behind them because they just were gone. And so I guess I just wanted to fight the scariness by educating people, I guess is the best way you can say that. And I think the climate right now is encouraging me and motivating me to do that. How far along are you in doing this research? I think you said it's leading towards a book. Do you have a working title? It is leading towards a book. I've been going about six months now. I spent a few months deep in in reading and deep in hunting for articles, and I will start to comb through archives across the country. But part of the read, I mean, the reading is amazing. I love learning about the, the past and the facts and all that. But part of what has become really important to me is to find people that were actually part of this 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 movement. You know, across the country, there were so many patrols all across the country. And I feel like a more powerful part of the project for me is to actually speak to people and to to make their stories and voices heard in a way that takes the story out of simply facts. I do want to educate people, but I also want to move the voices into the forefront, if that makes sense. So yes, it is moving towards a book. I do have a working title. I like it, but it is kind of problematic. But my working title right now is We Bashed Back and came from a quote, kind of a direct quote from one of the co-founders of the Pink Panthers from a Washington Post article. And she's quoted as saying, we bashed back or we're, I think she said, we are bashing back. Of course, people took offense to that because it definitely connotates a sort of violent action against violence, which these patrols were. 99% 99% nonviolent and they weren't even they they didn't even get involved in violence they just sort of observed violence so bashing back is sort of a misnomer but i think it encapsulates the feeling of protection the feeling of like i will do anything to protect my tribe you know the the street patrols sort of grew out of a militant movement you know the act up and the queer patrol movement were were a kind of a militant movement not so much anti or not so much violent movement, but I think I wanted to connotate and and 
frame it in that militant movement. And so We Bashed Back is, is sort of the working title at this point. This is Queer Voices. I'm Glenn Holt, and we're talking with John Garrison, who is doing research for a book about anti-LGBTQ hate patrols across the country uh, circa the 1990s. John, what have you uncovered in terms of surprises along the way? This is an interesting question. There haven't there haven't been a lot of big surprises along the way. There's been a lot of interesting facts. I think really the biggest surprise is that a lot of these people are still alive. That's been a really big surprise to me. I've located a number of people from one of the earliest street patrols that I can find in the 1970s in San Francisco. So the fact that I found two living people that are willing to speak to me was an insane surprise. Um, yeah, I think that's that's sort of the biggest surprise that I found. I think something else that's sort of surprising, but not really all too surprising, is how similar each one of these stories is. I've spoken to people in groups from from across the country, and their stories are very similar. I mean, their their past are different, obviously, but their reasons, their their ideas, their 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 reasons to be out there week after week and and kind of put themselves in, into danger. They all are so similar and themes are starting to emerge from these conversations because everyone has a similar experience. And I guess it's not terribly surprising, but but I have been surprised when I ask a, a brand new person who who knew nothing of another street patrol and they have a, a kind of similar answer to uh, you know something else I've heard from someone else in a, a completely different state in a completely different patrol. And I think that's been kind of surprising to me. Well, we didn't have internet back then. I think we may have had AOL. I'm not sure. I don't remember clearly. So there wasn't the level of communication that you would expect today. So that is interesting. Do you have a message for anyone today who's listening in what you found? A message meaning what would I like people to know? Sure. Or I think if if you know if I could talk selfishly, which I guess I can, it's it's me sort of moving this project forward. But I guess if I could answer that, it would be that to sort of remind people that the reasons I'm doing this, I think are kind of universal. I think it's really easy to feel broken down and beaten down and just sort of tired of the fight, tired of the of the need for the fight. I think we've come become complacent in our progress. And I think we don't realize how fragile that progress is and how much some people want to take that progress away from us and how close we are to a backlash that would require the restarting of these patrols of making dense urban areas really unsafe for queer people. There's a lot of places that are, are currently unsafe for queer people, even the progress that we've made. But I guess I would just, I don't know, I guess I would remind people that we are a powerful bunch and we are we have power in in numbers i think community is something i would like people to really remember and and remember that we have power through community that's really one of the themes that's coming out of this project is how important community is with the advent of social media and and the internet and the the loss of queer spaces the loss of gay bars the even the loss of gay neighborhoods i think we sort of have forgotten how important community is, how important coming together as a group is, how important, how healing, how necessary, how powerful that can be. Even as me, you know, who lives in Los Angeles, and there are 
a large number of queer people here, there doesn't feel like there's a strong community really of, of, of queer people. And I think that that's important to remind people that, that that's a, that's a, that's a powerful thing. But yeah, just that we have the power, we are, we are not victims and we, we have fought hard and, you know, we, we may need to fight hard still. John, do you welcome people contacting you with questions or juicy tidbits? I very much welcome that. You know, this, the, this, this book is, it's, it's an interesting piece of history. It can be written without talking to anybody, but I think it would be so much more interesting and powerful and a way to preserve our history from the mouths of the, of, of the elders that came before us. I think it would be so much more powerful if I could speak to as many people as I could. A lot of people ask, what type of book is this going to be? And my answer has become, it really depends on how many people I can talk to, you know, whether I write a history book or whether I write an oral history book. And I think I would much prefer the, the latter of really writing a, 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 an oral history book with the words of the people that went through this, these, these patrols. So yes, I would welcome anyone reaching out to me and talking to me, speaking with me for even a quick email or an hour-long interview. I would love all of that. Okay, we'll go ahead and give us your contact information then. You can just email webashedback, all one word, all lowercase, at gmail.com. So it's webashedback at gmail.com. And do you have any kind of rough idea when the when the book might be finished, when you might be ready to publish? I don't know. It really depends on how how many people I think I can talk to. I really would like to take the time and do it right and really hunt for those stories and give voice to those people that may be out there. So I would hope in the next year or so, I would have some sort of idea, some sort of draft, but it really just depends on how how easy these people are to locate. And up until now, it's been easy and not easy. So it really depends. I'm Glenn Holt, and I have been talking with John Garrison, who is researching a, well, a, a book about gay citizens' watch patrols across the U.S. circa the 1990s. John, thanks for seeking us out and taking the time to talk with us. Thank you so much. Coming up next on Queer Voices, Deborah has a conversation with the Montrose Center about this year's Bringing in the Green Party and Fundraiser. This radio program, Queer Voices, has existed since the 1970s on KPFT. We have this little crew of folks working every week to produce what's no longer unique because we're almost mainstream now, but we're still an important voice that might not otherwise get heard because it's not on that many places. So KPFT is very important to give voices to those who might not otherwise have voices. So as Glenn always says, you participate by listening, you should also participate by supporting the station. So please go to kpft.org and make your donation right away. This is Queer Voices.
This is Deborah Moncrief-Bell, and today we have some friends from the Montrose Center to talk about bringing in the green. Primarily, we have Honey Phillips, who is the Development Specialist of Community Events at the Center. Honey, this is a new position for you. How is it going? I love it. I'm glad to be a great addition to the development team. It's small. We're getting things done. Um, We've revamped some stuff, so I'm just happy to be here to get these events going for this year, for 2023. And is Bringing in the Green the first major event that you're responsible for? Yes, ma'am. And how's it going? It's going great. This year is hosted by Chris Robertson. Um, it's going to be at his home in the Montrose area. Um, this is our 31st annual St. Patrick's Day party. It'll be Friday, March 10th, 5 to 8 p.m. Um, and if all the proceeds are going to benefit the rapid rehousing services for our local LGBT youth who experience homelessness. Bringing in the Green has traditionally been, I think, one of the most fun events that the center holds. It is kind of a, just like you're having a party with friends, but it's for such important issues. Can you tell me any more about the history of Bringing in the Green? I just know I came on board. Everybody's looking forward to it, and we've been doing it for 31 years and this year, we're trying to incorporate something a tad bit different. Uh, we're going to also be celebrating Mardi Gras. So it's St. Patty's Day plus Mardi Gras in addition to it. Part of that St. Patrick's Day thing is kind of lended itself to the title, Bringing in the Green. It's a very clever name. Of course, bringing in the green means bringing in dollars, which is to help the programs there, which are so important and so vital to the community. I want to talk a little bit to the other folks. Jen Brock. Now, tell me what your position is, Jen. Hey, Deborah. Uh, I am the Youth Services Manager here at Montrose Center. So I oversee our youth programs. That includes Hatch, which is our um, uh, original youth program. It's um, a social peer support group for LGBTQ youth ages 7 to 20. And then we have uh, programs that um, assist with youth homelessness uh, and rehousing and employment, education, all those kinds of supports. What is it like if someone wants to go to Hatch? And of course, we always have to explain that there used to be a acronym that ended up with the name Hatch, but it's now just called the Hatch Program. And the youth are often called Hatchlings because it is their emergence into the world in the LGBTQ plus community in hopefully what is a very safe and supportive environment. How do people come into the program and what can they expect? There was, it was a very outdated acronym, but the, uh, we decided to keep the name for two reasons. First of all, it was, um, it's a a very old program. It's been around for uh, decades. So it had that, um, that sort of reputation preceding it that we didn't want. We didn't want to lose. Uh, it's been an important program for, for youth in Houston. 
Um, and second of all, because the idea of hatching sort of does speak to um, the experience for many of the youth. Um, so a lot of them might be struggling uh, with coming out or um, with uh discrimination or bullying at school. Uh, and we provide just a, a safe and really affirming um, place where they can truly be themselves um, without fear of, of those that kind of rejection or harassment. Um, so we, we provide a, a space where, where they can um, really flourish as well as uh, develop friendships um, and learn new skills. Uh, so it's a it's a, a truly beautiful and meaningful program. And the other part of youth services is providing housing. Tell me more about that program. Yeah, so we've um, partnered with the Houston Coalition for the Homeless. Um, and we have uh, a few programs. One is um, rapid rehousing. So those are um, uh, youth that have been experiencing homelessness, uh, not quite to the chronic level, um, where, it, where chronic meaning it may have been going on for quite some time or it's um, repeated, but uh, those who have been experiencing homelessness for a year or less, and um, we help them get into housing, and then uh, we spend a year with them providing intensive case management and working with them on um, financial stability and life skills uh, while helping them with their their rent and um, so that they can build savings and exit our program able to be self-sufficient. We also have a brand new program called Diversion that is for um, a a similar group of youth, but those youth who may be uh, not our traditional definition of homeless. We found that with youth in particular, they don't meet... um, the, the, the image you kind of get in your head of, of maybe somebody under a bridge or in a shelter that they may be, um, that for youth, it may look a little different. There may be couch surfing. Um, and so we, we have a new program called Diversion uh, that's meant to, to assist those, those youth and trying to divert them from, um, from homelessness uh, in a deeper sense. That is a little shorter term, um, but we still provide uh, some rent assistance and some meaningful case management to help them really get on their feet um, and start a journey of um, stability and self-sufficiency. So they're just, I can't speak highly enough of any of our youth programs. I'm so honored to be a part of it. Uh, but the youth homeless initiatives um, really make a difference. One of the primary causes for youth homelessness is uh, um being LGBTQ and and things that have happened as a result, whether um, uh, often um, having to leave their their family home um, because of that, uh, and we know that being being homeless and LGBTQ is also a risk factor when it comes to safety. And so, being able to to help uh, a different, a specific type of client in the community who is truly in need uh, is hugely meaningful and um, important uh, and um, relatively new to the Montrose Center. We saw the need and a rising need um, and applied for for these grants and started these um, these mm-hmm. programs. And the annual fundraiser has 
really gone a, a long a, a long way in helping those youth. About how many are served? Yeah, we serve about a hundred, uh, just shy of a hundred a year with our our um, homeless rehousing programs. And do they come to you through the Coalition for the Homeless or, or in other ways? What are the methods that people can access services? Yeah, they do the Coalition of the Homeless. Um, and if if they come to the center directly seeking help, we're able to um, provide, conduct what is called a, a coordinated access assessment. That's um, the, the city and, and surrounding areas, uh, all is within one system with the coalition. Um, that it's a screening process, uh, and then they're they're um, funneled to the appropriate programs. So we're able to to get them enrolled with the coalition um, if they come directly to the Montrose Center, uh, and then they'll, they'll be referred back through the coalition. We're going to talk with Juju, and I'm sorry, Juju, I should have asked you, how do, how do you pronounce your last name? Farragher. Okay, Juju Farragher, and you're uh, in charge of the Hatch program, and so let's delve into that a little bit more. Okay, I'm 15 years old, and I come to the Montrose Center, I hear there's a program. Who do I talk to? Where do I go? What's going to happen when I get there? I'd say typically, uh, hypothetically, you're that 15-year-old teenager that's just walked into the room, probably feels a little bit intimidating, um, but uh, most of the time, I'm usually right at the front with a little sign-in piece of paper. Um, So you'd come right up to me, right at the front, and um, introduce yourself, or I'd introduce myself to you, and um, I'd offer you a little intake form, uh, basically... Uh, just kind of filling out some uh, information for us. And then once that, you'll make a name tag for yourself. Uh, You'll put your uh, chosen or preferred name. um, And then with your pronouns as well, right underneath. And then uh, the kind of room is is yours. Um, And, you know, that can be intimidating for some kids um, because here you're entering into a new space with all these people that you don't know. Sometimes we'll have um, some of the other youth um, that have been in the program for a little while now um, kind of come by and, and help the uh, new kiddos out, kind of just show them around and, and make sure that they feel comfortable uh, and safe in the room. What age ranges are served? So for Hatch youth specifically, um, that's uh, from 13 to 20. And then we also do have our Hatch juniors. Um, which are our little kiddos, and that's uh, from uh, ages 7 to 12. I was just going to elaborate a little um, on what Juju was saying, uh, that Hatch sessions are um, three times a week and Hatch juniors twice a month. Um, And Hatch sessions consist of three components. There's um, social time, some kind of educational programming. Um, uh, We try to make it really creative and fun and then an optional peer support group. Um, So those are the the primary components of Hatch. And I know there's a big room there with couches and with things to do for activities and lots of books and opportunity just to meet other kids and talk with them and, and kind of form a community that way. About how many people are attending? Typically, on on any uh, kind of given hatch youth, uh, you're looking between 
15 to 16 at minimum to uh, 30 um, has kind of been our, our highest amount for these past uh, few months or so. And do most of the youth come in and stay with the program until they age out? A lot of them do. Um, some may be kind of going through uh, through a hard time and, and need that extra support um, temporarily. They, like you said, they uh, they come in and they build these strong friendships. So a lot of them will hang out outside of Hatch. Um, they, we do get mo- most of the most of them are long term hatchlings. And what do you think is the biggest success of the program? I would say that the biggest success of the the program is um, honestly in the kind of socialization uh, to kind of get uh, these teens uh, and youths in a community around each other um, so that they know that they're not alone. Um, and I think that has allowed them to feel comfortable enough to kind of come out of their shell um, and to kind of make larger steps, whether it's here at the center or um, outside. Um, you know, it's been really awesome to kind of hear about how they kind of progress um, in their in their lives outside of the center and outside of the program, um, where they feel more capable and more safe and, and more affirmed in themselves. I remember when Deb Murphy was in charge of the program, she said that there had not been any suicides from that group. Suicide is a big issue for LGBT youth. So that is a true mark of success in my book. Zero suicides and um, on a a lighter level, we do annual assessments. um, And it shows that by participation in Hatch, uh, the youth feel um, more connected and uh, their self-esteem increases. Self-esteem and self-value increases as a result of coming to Hatch, um, which I think is incredible. And Hatch was recognized as the, they were one of the Pride Grand Marshals last year, uh, the Trendsetter uh, Award for Grand Marshal. I'm sure they were very excited about that. Now we're going to go back to Honey. And I want you to go over again the details concerning bringing in the green and the website information people need to go to in order to find out more. Bringing in the green will be Friday, March 10th, 5 to 8 p.m. And you can follow us to find out more info on all social media platforms under the Matro Center at on Facebook or on Instagram. And probably the easiest thing to do is just to go to MontroCenter.org and you can find out all about bringing in the green as well as the Hatch Program and Youth Services. Next Saturday, November the 28th, is actually Shop Small, Shop Local. Our website is txpif.org. Facebook.com slash feed the vote Houston. Huh? Who is that talking? When's that going to happen? Did our guests talk about events, websites, and other contact information, and you didn't catch it? Check our own Queer Voices website at queervoices.org. We have all that information for you there, and you can find links to previous shows. That's queervoices.org, and we're also on Facebook. 
This is Queer Voices. This is Deborah Moncrief Bell, and today I'm talking with Diggle. Diggle is the set designer for a new musical that will be premiering at the Alley Theater March the 3rd and runs through March 26th. The name of the play is Cowboy Bob. Now, this is an intriguing play, especially since it's been made into a musical, and it it is uh, loosely based on the real-life events of a cross-dressing Texas woman who robbed banks. Diggle, you are a proud gay Mexican scenic designer with indigenous Mexica, which is Aztec roots. You received your BA in theater arts from Pepperdine University and your MFA in stage design from Southern Methodist right here in Texas. How did you get involved with being the set designer for this play? The writer, uh, Molly Murphy, um, she also went to SMU um, as an undergrad. We didn't overlap, um, but she was brought back to uh, direct um, a show for the SMU season called The Sparrow, and I was assigned to be her designer. And um, we just hit it off. It became like uh, this great artistic collaboration. And we've just always stayed in touch um, throughout the years. Uh, and so and each project that we could intersect on, we try to do that. Um, so I've designed some of her other plays. And she's hooked me up with some other um, artists that she loves and introduced me to Annie Tip also a couple of years back. And so from just having this great collaboration with Molly Murph, Molly Beach Murphy, um, I developed another great artistic collaboration with Annie Tip, and we all kind of of our cohorts together because Stevo, who is our projection designer, um, I did my first New York show with him, and um, so we all have just been like working and intersecting um, together. So it's really just kind of like a family developing this very amazing folktale together. Yeah. Oh, one of the interesting things about this is that the lead creative team is a playwright Molly Beach Murphy, director Ann Tip, and composer Gina Phillips. And just today, I listened to a song from the play called Canyons, mm -hmm. which is performed by Ashley Perez Flanagan, who plays one of the lead characters. Although she is a fictional character, she is not someone that was part of the real life story. But it is beautiful. I mean, it just grabs you. And if the rest of the songs in the play are anything like this one, it's going to be quite the hit. I think the soundtrack would be amazing. I'm very curious because especially at the alley, to me, the set is a character. Yes. It's it's part of what brings the illusion, to, a part of t what tells the story. So what is your approach? I mean, where do you begin? Well, I will say this show has been one of the hardest to design. I think if Annie and I were in the same room talking about our whole journey of designing this piece, it has been constantly trying to hone in on what is the essence of this story. And we've started off huge and grand. Um, and some may say that the set is still that way, but it's really um, fine-tuned to this really humble sort of setting. And, and for me, what was important, you know, we're telling a story that 
takes place um, in Texas, but it, um, as a person of color, as a Mexica indigenous person, you know, in, in developing um, a world that takes place in Texas, it was very important for me to not only um, develop a space that says Texas, but also says Texas, because I think for me, um, there, there wouldn't be Texas without the influence of Mexican culture. You know, it's prevalent in design, it's prevalent in the food. I mean, we uh, have really created um, and influenced what Texas is. And of course, we used to be Mexico. Exactly, exactly. And that's something uh, people are very quick to forget. This idea of ownership of land is, you know, crazy. Um, and who who gets to stake that claim? In creating the world for Cowboy Bob, I was really wanting to create a space that pays respect to both Texas and Texas in, in my eyes. And so I was uh, influencing the world and interjecting a lot of Mexican folk art that I grew up with into the layers of the world I was creating. So there's a lot of influence of, of I mean, the big crux of the design is that, is that it's a Mexican nicho. And a nicho is, in Mexican folk art are these, some mostly made out of uh, decorative tin or wood, but they're these small decorative boxes that depict the essence of a story. And so that's what I wanted to create for Cowboy Bob was its own large scale nicho that could be the container for Cowboy Bob and Rena for their story to unfold. And this container is what's holding them in for so long until they break free of that. Yes, I, I know the, exactly the uh, art that you're talking about. I'm assuming that Ashley Perez Flanagan is, in fact, a person of uh, Hispanic heritage, um, and she's a beautiful young woman. Among the things in the story are, I would guess, living quarters, an RV, bars, banks. So how do you get all that on the stage? First, I will I will just address the word Hispanic. Now, I don't. Maybe um, Ashley Perez uses that word. I, as myself, do not identify with that word um, because it uh, uh, it's a term used that um, that really means of Spain. It it really denies our our as um, Mexican people or um, other people. Um, um, south of the border that it denies uh, our indigenous roots. And it's a way to continually to recolonize ourselves. Um, so I'm not sure if Ashley uses that word, but um, I don't use that okay. word. So but just let me ask, what, what would be your preferred word? My, for myself, I identify um, as Mexican um, and that's my preferred word. I even question the word Latino now because, again, that's a term used to group us all together. And really, it's, you know, a way to um, associate us with proximity to whiteness rather than to honor where we come from as indigenous people. Um, so, I mean, I'm on my own journey with that word, but definitely I, I will say for myself, I don't 
and I don't and I don't want to speak for Ashley. It's sometimes difficult to know the correct word to use. A lot of people are using the term Latinx now, and I have friends who have said, what the heck is that about? I even saw where it was written out that where Hispanic is appropriate, where Latin is appropriate, where, you know, and, and it, it, it's like, wait a minute, I, I don't always know. You don't always know. Of course, there was also the assumption that any brown-skinned person that spoke Spanish was Mexican without looking at the wide diversity of a huge yeah. part of the Americas. Yes. Uh, one of my dearest friends is from Paraguay. And, you know, that's that's a whole different world than Mexico. And yet people would lump that together. I'm grateful for you mentioning that because I think it's important for people to learn and to be more expansive with uh, how they identify. You know, we've gotten into this whole thing of using pronouns or making Mm -hmm. sure that we have preferred pronouns. And it feels a little bit like that. It's like, well, maybe you should put your pronoun and your the identity And so I apologize for the term, and I didn't mean it in any way to be disrespectful. I just didn't know what to use. Of course, I did not get the sense. I think for me, I think it's just important in opportunities where I can shed light upon the history of those words. I think it's important for me um, as a Mexican person to be able to do that. And so you gave me the space to do that, um, which is great. Back to the set design for Cowboy Bob. So you you took these Mexican influences and utilized them within the framework of the play. What else did you do? And do you actually, you'll be coming to Houston and be here for the building and the painting and the actual building of the stage? Yes. Um, yes and no. So, I mean, you know, as a set designer, you fly in, um, you know, typically for a site visit and then for a shop visit to check in on the progress. And then everything is done um, offsite, you know, because I'm based in New York. So I'm we're constantly checking in the shop via email, phone call, whatever. Um, but then we go into what is a tech residency or artist residency where we're in there. Uh, at in Houston or at whatever theater you're operating at as a designer, um, and you're there to then bring all the elements together um, in the tech process. Um, uh, yes. I'm sorry. What was your other question? <laughs> well, j- just like exactly how does it happen? Y- you you draw out the design. Oh, yes. I'm a big 3D uh, renderer person, so I don't tend to hand sketch really anymore. I sketch it out via 3D, and then from there, I go into the more technical side of drafting out the elements so that the shop knows um, you know, dimensions of how I want things um, to be built and what materials that I'm looking at for it to be built out of. But then there's a whole conversation between myself and the shop that happens because the style of drafting I produce are more artistic um, representations of the overall look. And then it's their job to then take my drawings and produce engineering drafting to make sure that things are structural because I have no concept of that. Do you have to work with 
the playwright and the director, what kind of input do they give about what needs to be on the stage for them to do the physical movement of the players with within the scene and to tell the story? It's a big conversation back and forth, mainly with the director, but um, but like with a new play like this, um, the writer is sometimes in on the design conversations as well. Um, not all the time, um, but it's definitely a, a, um, a big conversation back and forth between the director and myself. And then we integrate the rest of the design team. So usually early on, I'll present to the director research and some initial sketches of what I think it will look like. And then as we start to hone in on the language of the world, then we'll start to fold in um, the lighting designer and the sound designer and, and the costume designer to make sure that we're all starting to develop the world together and not separately. Um, so it's constant communication to create the collaboration. Wow, it just sounds amazing to me <laughs> for all <laughs> that to take place and how it when you actually see it and and with the costuming and all the elements that go into making the illusion come alive in the theater. Both Brian Lavinka, who is my co-host and producer, and I are big live theater devotees. What are some of the other plays that you've done? Tell me a little bit about what you've done in New York, because Brian goes to New York frequently to see Broadway shows. As an associate, I did um, Slave Play on Broadway, uh, and I was with it the whole um, from New York Theater Workshop. So I've done every um, production from New York Theater Workshop to now. Um, and then I also did Grand, as an associate, Grand Horizons, um, and then uh, there was. Uh, How I Learned to Drive, that was with Rachel Hauk. Um, currently, right now, I'm designing uh, along, Clint Ramos and I are designing together um, uh, The Harder They Come at the Public. So we're in previews right now. So I'm actually, I'm at, I'm at the public theater and we're teching uh, during the day right now. And then we have previews in the evening and it's this big, amazing reggae musical written by Susan Laurie Parks that's based off of the film uh, of the same title, The Harder They Come, that came out of the 70s in Jamaica. Um, and it's just, an, it's an amazing, um, amazing musical. Um, so come see that if you come to New York. <laughs> um, yeah, I mean, and, you know, I've done a lot of stuff off Broadway, um, more as a, an associate, but I'm kind of like, you know, I have been working and climbing the ladder and now I'm, you know, staking claim as a head designer and making moves that way. So uh, you'll see more and more of, of Diggle's work. This is Deborah Moncrief Bell, and we've been talking with Diggle, who is the set designer for Cowboy Bob, which will be at the Alley Theater March 3rd to the 26th. Playwright Molly Beach Murphy, director Annie Tipp, composer Gina Phillips, and you can see the designs for the Alley production of Cowboy Bob at DiggleDesigns.com. Thanks for being with us today on Queer Voices. 
I'm Michael LeBeau. And I'm Ava Davis. With News Wrap, a summary of some of the news in or affecting LGBTQ communities around the world for the week ending March 4th, 2023. The judges of the Supreme Court of Panama are thumbing their collective noses at the Inter-American Court of Human Rights to rule against marriage equality. All 20 nations in Central and South America were ordered to open the civil institution to same-gender couples in 2017 under the regional court's decision. However, a February 16th ruling announced on March 1st by Panama's High Court cited the family code that defines marriage as between a man and a woman and a 2015 law prohibiting marriage between individuals of the same sex. Panama's neighbors, Costa Rica and Colombia, enacted marriage equality even before the regional court's order, but the high court judges remained unfazed. Their press release insisted that the court does not have the power to change civil marriage laws. In their words, their decision was objectively and reasonably justified in the general interest of giving precedence to those unions with the potential of establishing families, giving continuity to the human race and therefore to society. They clearly ignored the reality of families with children headed by same-gender couples. At least five queer couples have filed lawsuits since 2016 demanding the recognition of their marriage in Panama. Ivan Shanice Baarona is the president of Fundacion Igualas, a Panamanian queer advocacy group. He called the ruling cowardly and told the Spanish-language news agency EFE that it has distanced the country from the international community and its commitments in the area of human rights. Barahona says that his organization has yet to develop a post-ruling strategy, but told the Washington Blade that Panama has violated international law, violated international human rights law, and violated the inter-American system ruling. Denying civil marriage to gay and lesbian couples is not unjust discrimination by the state, according to Japan's Prime Minister, Fumio Kishida. The backlash from equality activists was immediate. Kishida tried to calm their outrage this week by saying that rejecting marriage equality is not unconstitutional, claiming that he has no personal bias against it. Kishida was forced to fire a member of his cabinet in February after the official made inflammatory anti-queer remarks. The PM then held a meeting with LGBTQ advocacy groups. He then appointed a special aid for LGBTQ-related issues and called for legislation to promote understanding, although he offered no specifics. Civil partner registrations in a number of municipal and regional jurisdictions have granted same-gender couples a few symbolic rights. The country's social conservatism has still kept many LGBTQ people in the closet, however. The government's anti-equality animosity has reportedly contributed to electoral animosity, with younger voters in particular calling on their country to join the rest of the world's major democracies by opening civil marriage to same-gender couples. Recent polls show Kishida's popularity precipitously plunging from 60% to 30% during just the past 12 months. His liberal Democratic Party-led administration remains unmoved. It consistently quashes any legislative marriage equality efforts at the federal level and fights against it in Japan's courts. Two courageous students at China's prestigious Tsinghua University are refusing to take their formal disciplinary warnings lying down. 
They are filing a lawsuit demanding that the Ministry of Education review their school's student affairs office's action against them for distributing rainbow flags on campus ahead of Pride Month last year. The ministry rejected their application for an administrative review in February. Going only by the name Wang, one of the two women plaintiffs says they're a bit pessimistic about getting a win. She told the South China Morning Post, the lawsuit still has its significance in raising public awareness. Of course, the government wants to prevent that, so information about the lawsuit online has been suppressed. Yanze Peng of LGBT Rights Advocacy China told the Morning Post that the university's penalty reflected a politicized misunderstanding and handling of the situation. In his words, Gender diversity in education and the right of sexual minority students to a dignified education on campus should be the responsibility of the schools and the education system. Pro-queer activism on school campuses is banned by the Chinese government, which has been aggressive in its efforts to eliminate any positive portrayals of LGBTQ people in the media. Darius Longarino is a senior fellow at Yale Law School's Paul Tsai China Center. He lauded the students for their bravery, saying, In the past two years or so, space for LGBTQ expression and advocacy have drastically declined. This has also affected court cases, some of which have encountered lengthy, unexplained delays. Young people's gender-affirming care has been officially banned in two more U.S. states. Republican Mississippi Governor Tate Reeves signed legislation on February 28th that forbids doctors from offering puberty blockers, hormone therapy, or any other affirming care for transgender people under the age of 18. Their parents are banned from acting in support of their children's gender identities. Offending physicians can have their medical licenses revoked and can also be sued for violating the laws. The American Medical Association, the American Academy of Pediatrics, and virtually Every professional health care organization in the United States supports gender-affirming care for trans youth. The American Civil Liberties Union and the ACLU of Mississippi issued a statement together calling the legislation a devastating development for transgender youth in Mississippi and heartbreaking for all of us who love and support them. This care is already difficult to access across the state for transgender people of any age, but this law shuts the door on best practice medical care and puts politics between parents their children, and their doctors. Days later, Tennessee's Republican governor, Bill Lee, signed similar legislation. His Republican-dominated legislature voted on March 2nd to make ongoing gender-affirming care for minors illegal as of the end of March 2024. Federal courts have already enjoined enactment of laws banning gender-affirming care for transgender youth in Alabama and Arkansas. Civil rights and queer legal advocacy groups have signaled that they'll be challenging the recently enacted laws in Mississippi and Tennessee as well. Republicans in Utah and South Dakota have also passed similar bans. Tennessee Governor Bill Lee also signed the nation's first ban on drag shows as adult-oriented performances that are harmful to minors. This despite a photo surfacing earlier in the week of a young Bill Lee himself in drag. That law is scheduled to take effect on April Fool's Day, which could be considered appropriate. Finally, there's no drag ban in Wheeling, West Virginia, yet, but the Primanti Brothers Restaurant and Bar won't be able to prove its theory that a little glitter never hurt anyone. Threats against both performers and patrons caused them to cancel their drag brunch in mid-February. 
They were just two tables away from being sold out, according to the promoter's Facebook post. They wrote, In the near future, we can try to bring another brunch to the area. Local mixed martial arts manager Johnny Hot is offering the eatery some muscular support. He responded on Facebook, We hate bullies around here. He volunteered himself and some of his fighters to work as security. Hot wrote, Let these hateful loudmouths know that they are not the majority and we won't be silent about the hate anymore. Plus, drag shows are some of the most fun shows ever. That's News Wrap, global queer news with attitude, for the week ending March 4th, 2023. Follow the news in your area and around the world. An informed community is a strong community. News Wrap is written by Greg Gordon, edited by Lucia Chappelle, produced by Brian DeShazer, and brought to you by you. Thank you. Help keep us in ears around the world at thiswayout.org, where you can also read the text of this newscast and much more. For This Way Out, I'm Ava Davis. Stay healthy. And I'm Michael LeBeau. Stay safe. This has been Queer Voices, which is now a home-produced podcast and available from several podcasting sources. Check our webpage, queervoices.org, for more information. Queer Voices executive producer is Brian Lavinka. Andrew Edmondson and Deborah Moncrief-Bell are frequent contributors. The News Wrap segment is part of another podcast called This Way Out, which is produced in Los Angeles. Some of the material in this program has been edited to improve clarity and runtime. This program does not endorse any political views or animal species. Views, opinions, and endorsements are those of the participants and the organizations they represent. In case of death, please discontinue use and discard remaining products. For Queer Voices, I'm Glenn Holt.